Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles for another week. Producer Trent here. On today's episode, Robin is going to be talking to Jessica Nordell, the American author of The End of Bias. Before we get to that, I hope you've all got your tickets for either Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People at King's Place on December 10, 11, 17 and 18, or Robin and Brian's Christmas Compendium of Reason at the Royal Albert Hall on December 14, or come to both. Tickets are on sale for those now. As ever, all profits will be going to charity. You can also support the podcast and everything we do at Cosmic Shambles by subscribing on Patreon at patreon.com slash bookshambles. You'll get extended editions of this episode and all the other episodes, plus lots of extra goodies as well. Discounts on tickets for upcoming shows, uh, advanced pre-sales on stuff, bonus series, all that sort of stuff. Robin is nearing the end of his 100 bookshops tour now, so there's about a week left to catch him at a few places around the country. So go to cosmicshambles.com slash 100 bookshops for the remaining dates where you can see him. Now, here is today's episode. Here is Robin and Jessica. Welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, this is another week where we don't currently have Josie. Uh, Josie is on uh, maternity leave at the moment, and uh, hopefully uh, she will be back soon. And uh, everything's going very well. Just so you know, just in case you, you want to, I've, I visited her when I was up in Glasgow recently, and uh, it was all wonderful. So today, though, uh, we're going to be talking a very interesting and a very interesting area which we're seeing more and more being dealt with now, and kind of seeing quite. A interesting new studies in terms of us trying to understand very often not merely our biases but our biases that we have no awareness that we actually have uh, and this is a book by Jessica Nordell and it is called The End of Bias and as well as telling us about sometimes being aware of our biases how we can try and deal with them as well in the kind of the reality tunnel that we are surrounded by but we are sometimes unaware of. Hello. Good. Hi hello. Now I want to get let's get straight away into this. Uh, there's a couple of interesting stories you have. You kind of almost the origin myth, I suppose, of of this book. Um, and one of them is when you were uh, first working as a journalist, finding kind of trying to work out sometimes why you seem to get a lot of rejections. And then you you came up with a um, a, a scheme to find out if something played a part in that. It's true. You know, I, I was in, when I was in my 20s, I was working as a journalist and doing a lot of work with regional and local publications. Um, but what, yeah, when I as you mentioned, you know, when I when I began pitching to national magazines and newspapers, I wasn't having a lot of luck. So I had this one particular story that had like a very tight time frame um, during which it's, it was relevant. So I, I was getting really desperate when I, I wasn't hearing back from editors. So I, in a moment, yeah, in just kind of a fit of uh, despair, I created a new email address for myself and sent the query out as JD Nordell instead of Jessica Nordell, thinking maybe if this, with this kind of masculine suggesting, <laughs> you know, masculine leaning um, 
you know, pseudonym, maybe something, maybe I'd have a different response. And I, I didn't really think it would work. You know, it was sort of a last ditch effort. But the, that piece was, was accepted within a couple of hours. And it was the same, it was the same pitch. I mean, it was the same query. It was the same essay. Uh, everything was the same except, you know, I had sent it out as JD instead of Jessica. So I was, I was pretty shocked and a little unnerved by it. But I thought, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try this. So I ended up using JD as a pseudonym um, for a couple of years after that and ended up uh, writing for, you know, a lot of different publications as JD instead of Jessica. And before that, had you, I mean, had you started, it, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because now there, there was a, a, a male British journalist who, who recently wrote a piece saying, oh, you've got to be a woman nowadays to, to have a novel <laughs> out and all these things. And it does seem, I, I was thinking of Gina Davis's research, where the the, the, the actor Gina Davis, where um, she, uh, I, I don't know if she acts at all now, but she's done a lot of research into the fact that how uh, very often in, say, a masculine culture, if you want to call this a masculine culture, if you're watching a movie and there's a scene where there's one third of the room is women people immediately overestimate just how dominant the women were in the film how many women were in the Mm. film and it seems that we're going through that again at the moment on lots of different kind of cultural levels and in lots of areas Mm. of diversity is it only requires two faces and people suddenly go oh I mean it's just like you can't be be a white male author anymore you go into the shops and I've checked it seems there's a few getting through there's a few getting through. Yeah, recently I was looking at the Wall Street Journal Fall Books uh, Guide. No shade to the Wall Street Journal, but uh, the Fall Books, I think there were 17 books that had full-length reviews and 14 uh, were by men. So it doesn't it doesn't seem like um, they're, you know, being completely disbarred. But yeah, I mean, the Gina Davis research is interesting. You know, it reminds me of um, similar research about how when when women speak in a meeting, um, like 20 or 30% of the time, people think that they have spoken 50% of the time. Mm. And when they speak 50% of the time, people think they have dominated the conversation. So it's, yeah, I, it's, it's very, uh, it's very similar, but I think, I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's something, um, when things get a bit destabilized, I think it, yeah, it creates a, an impression that there's been a complete revolution when, you know, in fact, maybe there's just been some incremental improvement. Well, it's the old thing, isn't it? That it, 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 equality is is uh, is not superiority, and yet very quickly that is what it kind of seems. You know, loss of loss of uh, uh, superiority is not loss of equality, um, right. and yet I think there's a lot of that narrative seems to we we see it all the time with with uh, people, you know, f- furious that they feel that you know it's a bit like when you see we've we've had some campaigning of British museums recently saying that, oh, but we seem to be losing the British story. And to me, it's like this idea, where you're not losing a story, you're gaining more stories. Mm-hmm. This, this this idea that there must be, and that's when you realise that actually what people are really saying is books by white male authors in the 19th century are superior, art by white male artists in the 20th century must be proper art because they know how to do it properly. Like, like you know, Linda, is it Linda Nocklin who wrote um, the, that essay about why there are no great um, women artists, which was looking at the fact that if you, I mean, I, I picked up an art book the other day, which was written in the, the mid 90s, a collection of reviews and there was not a single artist female artist mm-hmm. in in and and that is and that was over a hundred reviews of exhibitions in London 
Right. So if that's kind of how your mind is tuned to that, your your mind becomes tuned to, you know, that's the baseline. That's, that's our kind of neutral starting point. Then a departure from that starts to feel scary. It starts to feel unjust, you know, it starts to feel um, like, uh, you know, the, the way things ought to be uh, is getting disrupted, which can be very threatening to people. And then, you know, that creates a whole kind of emotional cascade of events, which, is its own, you know, its own challenge, kind of dealing with the um, the emotional response to that kind of threat to status. Well, you start off with, I mean, such a, a brilliant illustration and fascinating illustration in the book of uh, the story of a trans male academic. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about because because I, I thought as as I was reading that it it just it does see it seems such it, in one way such a simple story to mm-hmm. make a very important point yeah you know this was it was one of the this is a the story of um ben barris who is a transgender neurobiologist at stanford um and this is you know his story has sort of been ringing in my ears ever since i heard about it i think he first published um his own memoir sort of short essay memoir about his experience in like 2005 or 2006 and i started corresponding with him then and um, his, you know, his story is fascinating. He he was uh, a neurobiologist at Stanford. He had made really groundbreaking discovery um, about the role of the glia, which are a particular specialized kind of brain cell. And uh, he decided to go through a gender transition. He was in his mid, early 40s, mid early 40s at the time. And he was concerned um, because he had been you know, perceived up to that point as um, being female and was worried that this transition would cause people to maybe stop inviting him to conferences or stop wanting to, you know, stop wanting to um, join his lab. People, he, he was really concerned that there might be a really, really big backlash. But what he found, interestingly, and this is not always the case for trans people, but in his case, the environment that he worked in was quite accepting of his um, transition. What he found that was really surprising to him was that people who did not know he was transgender in the scientific community started reacting to him totally differently. So he started noticing when he would be at scientific meetings, people would not interrupt him in meetings. They would take what he said seriously they wouldn't necessarily doubt him they would you know he was having this completely different experience as ben barris than he had been having before his transition and the thing that was really fascinating to me about it (coughs) i mean many fascinating things but one is that he really had not detected sexism before i mean he told me you know he, he could think of like a couple of times where you know a professor had said something that kind of seemed kind of sexist, but generally he he hadn't experienced what he thought of as sexism until he had this new experience being perceived in a completely different way that illuminated to him the way that he had been experiencing life before was full of these sort of a, you know moments of being undermined that he hadn't even realized because he he didn't have anything to compare it to. 
And you saw it the other way round as well. There was an, another uh, uh, um, transgender academic, wasn't there? Uh, yes. Um, female transgender academic who went, oh, now I don't get lots of the things that I had before. Seem yes. to be taken away from me. Yes. And that, and you know, it's, it's really interesting because sometimes when people hear the story of Ben Barris, they, they come up with other explanations. Like, well, maybe he was just much more confident now. You know, maybe he was, he felt you know, more comfortable in his skin and therefore people were responding to him with more deference and more respect because he was presenting himself, you know, in a more polished way. But if that were the case, then you would expect the same thing to happen for trans women, uh, you know, who, who experience the workplace and they really have the opposite experience oftentimes. So they, they suddenly find their authority is questioned. They are, you know, not given the benefit of the doubt. They are, um, they're questioned more, uh, and this 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 is often a surprise to them as well, not having realized how much of a benefit they were getting before, at, you know, presenting to the world as as male. Why do you think it is that people do get so uh, again from people like me who have a position of advantage, you know, to mm. to, to to be a kind of you know middle class white male, that mm. that that the anger mm. that seems to be there which to me always appears to be an unjustified anger because to acknowledge an advantage does not mean that it immediately means that you're rubbish or anything like that, but it mm -hmm. just seems to be a better way of just going, I realised that my path was probably easier than for many of my friends who do not have you know, the, 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 these advantages. But for some people that seems to mean that you know, there's you know certain people. For instance, there's a a, a well-known actor in the UK who comes from a famous acting dynasty and is now currently becoming something of a kind of pin-up um, on the uh, on on the right. And it seems to me that some of that anger comes from. Well, I am actually brilliant, and just because I I went to a very posh school and uh, I come from a famous acting dynasty does not mean that I'm not actually. And all of that kind of what is it? Is it is it somewhere in there a critical voice which is is you know where where do you think that comes from that 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 refusal to just acknowledge sometimes the advantages that some of us have? Oh, it's, it's a really good question. I, I think that it is, um, honestly, I think it's a lack of emotional skill because these, you know, being confronted with the fact that maybe your position was not as, you know, was was not you didn't achieve your position out because because you, be, solely because of your own brilliance and excellence that realization can be upsetting and can create a feeling of of shame and i think that if you know if you don't kind of have some practice at recognizing what's going on and then not only recognizing it, but actually being able to to work with that feeling and kind of investigate it and transform it into something more like compassion, both for the self and for other people, um, then, you know, I, I think there can be kind of a sense of paralysis that that sets in. You know, shame has been described as the internalization of scorn. And um, what I, what I notice when when people are acting in ways like what you're describing is that um, it's almost like a trapped animal. You know, there there's like a sense of um, of desperation that I think maybe comes from sort of trying to defend against this internalization of scorn. And so, 
you know, what I would hope, what I, what I really am trying to do with this book is create a, a way for people to look at the reality of their own experience and the feelings that come up with that recognition, and then be able to work with those feelings and start to transform them so that they don't lead to that kind of paralysis and anger and kind of like lashing out um, that we see so frequently. But it really takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of kind of emotional um, maturity and just skill in working, you know, being able to look at one's own emotional response and pause and, um, and, you know, uh, realize that um, it's something that, you know, that that can be worked with and doesn't necessarily need to lead to a complete shutdown. Do you think some of it is also in in our cultures? I think there's the the, the kind of the hero narrative and the self made man narrative. Mm-hmm. And I I saw a very good lecture by uh, a guy who had been um, he was a, a a refugee and came to England and has now become a hugely successful lawyer. And he wrote a book saying that he he you know saying I'm not a self made person. These are all the people who are part of my you know my journey these are mm-hmm. all and yet people love they love that story don't they when you know we're always seeing these different illustrations sometimes within people who become tremendously successful on the internet whatever it is i've done it all myself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that has to be a lie doesn't it more often than not mm-hmm. N- none of us none of us achieve what we achieve by ourselves we <laughs> we are all you know standing on the shoulders of giants in many ways what's that there's a wonderful quote from george Eliot's middlemarch the fact that you and I, the fact that our lives are not so hard as they might have been is owing entirely to those who lived a humble life nobly and rest in unvisited tombs. Wow, that's great. And I think that we all, it's its hard to remember that. There are thousands of ancestors that we come from and, you know, both genetic ancestors and, you know, metaphorical ancestors and, um and then, you know, there's all of the material advantages that some of us have or uh, social advantages, cultural advantages. So, yeah, I mean, there's where we all are are standing on, you know, the shoulders of, of so many. And I think maybe maybe if we could just acknowledge that and and celebrate it instead of feeling like it's um, feeling like it is, uh, you know, somehow. Um, a slight or, you know, that it would count against us in some way that could be a helpful step. That reminds me of Stephen Jay Gould. I remember had a once when he was being asked about Einstein and he said, I don't like to overly celebrate Einstein because when I think of Einstein, I think of all of the Einsteins that were toiling in the fields. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a, a very beautiful way of looking that there, there are some who will make it through and there were many who with amazing minds and wonderful possibilities who will find themselves trapped in, in the same old narrative as well. It's so true. And I mean, you could look at Einstein's wife as an example of one of those people. Mm. No one really remembers her, but she she published, you know, alongside Einstein. They were classmates. They worked together. There's still some, you know, debate about whether she contributed to the 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 special the you know the the law of special relativity um so yeah i mean absolutely when do you think was it during your period of 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 being jd 
that you really started to be able to focus on uh, ideas and, and of, of going, ah, oh, I'd not noticed how much kind of institutional bias there is. Um, or was that something that had been forming for a while? Hmm. You know, I think I was a, I was attuned to it earlier as well. I remember I studied physics as an undergraduate and I remember, you know, being aware that, you know, maybe women's contributions weren't valued quite as much. I think at some point, now I'm just thinking about this. I haven't thought about this in a long time. I remember putting on my physics problem sets. Sometimes I would just put my last name or I would put Jay Nordell. Um, so I think, I mean, I, it wasn't like a fully sort of fully worked out theory, but there must've been something that caused me to, you know, to do that, to sort of think, well, may, you know, maybe there, there's some way that I'm being perceived in a, in a slightly different way because I'm a woman. And, you know, I, I, ex I had experience of, of bias and discrimination and, you know, low level harassment and stuff in college. So it was, yeah, it was definitely on my radar, but I think my experience being JD, um, for me, it really triggered my kind of academic interest in bias. I started becoming more curious about how it works and wanting to understand kind of the underlying psychology and ultimately, you know, trying to figure out whether there's something that we can do about it or whether it's kind of an inevitable, you know, facet of the mind. It's interesting is that that way that we, we we do need to or, or we, again we perhaps we don't need to but it's it's the easiest and quickest thing is to categorize I was just thinking when you mentioned physics there that uh recently when I was on tour um I was chatting to someone who uh she's studying astrophysics but she's uh, a hairdresser and mm. the idea of and I remember mentioning to someone I said oh, I was a really interesting person in fact I wish she'd answered some of the questions I got about black holes because you'd have done much better than me and mm -hmm. uh, and and someone and she just went, a hairdresser who's studying astrophysics you know and it's like for some people that is such a remarkably strange thing because mm -hmm. this person who you know didn't necessarily choose to be a hairdresser in one way it's that thing that got 16 years old and needed to get a job and that's the way that you mm -hmm. know for, for and but then had this building and building ambition to also study astrophysics but that mm -hmm. idea of you know it, to, to some people it seems to be the most remarkable superposition to be in to somehow balance those you know to be two of those things in the multitude of what you are mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's fascinating and of course there are lots of class assumptions that go along you know with with those categorizations as well and yeah i i, I agree yeah i, I just I, I wonder in, in terms of investigating because i suppose one of the things as well is investigating your own biases because there is that as you mentioned quite often in in, in studies when looking at various kind of biases uh that that people have or bigotries even then it's still specific groups and i think you say that for instance very often when it's been looking for instance at uh, uh at, at kind of misogyny very often the study group um will be uh white women and when it's looking at racism very often it will be uh black men and mm -hmm. so you're not even that you're still not getting the full picture even then there is a strange bias within the study of biases it's it's it was one of the most interesting i mean there's so, so many kind of aha moments that i had while i was researching this project but yeah one of them certainly was that like there are many forms of bias and prejudice that are embedded in the field of studying bias and prejudice and exactly one of them is that um there's this sort of uh erasure really of many many groups there 
you know, studies of gender bias are mostly about white women as though women are, you know, the default woman is white. Um, similarly, studies of, uh, of racism are um, focus on black men primarily. Um, not, you know, we don't have as many studies of the experience of black women, much less the experience of other racial and ethnic groups. I mean, in the United States, for instance, I was really curious to, to see what the research said about bias against Native Americans. And there's very little of, there, there's a very small body of research. I mean, the research that exists focuses on uh, the problem of mascots. You know, we have sports teams that use offensive uh, Native American, you know, symbols for, um, for sports mascots. But other than that, there's, there's very little. And I think that the, you know, the, the, the erasures in these, in the field kind of mirror the erasures in society in general, you know? Um, so there's a lot of work to be done. You know, another, 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 um, bias that's kind of embedded in the research itself is that, Often when um, uh, racial bias is is studied, it the framing of the study has a, a white sort of subject who's acting upon a black uh, participant or you know a, a black kind of like object in the study where and the white participant is the, um, is, the is the agentic one who does things to a passive, other. Um, and so even in the kind of construct of the study, you, you see a replication of the racist assumptions that we see in society at large. And you've talked, to, in, 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 I think it's in chapter one, is it Jessica Devine? I'm trying to, no, Patricia Devine, isn't it? And and her, yes. you know, th this point where fighting against, instinctually going, hang on a minute, this research can't be right. There has to be some research that is wrong. And that was looking at that kind of, 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 of biases that are very deep down. And that seems to me to be, the, it, it's quite easy, isn't it, really, to understand extremists or mm -hmm. overt bigots. And and I think quite often we we do have that. Uh, there's a desire as well to say someone is in inverted commas that kind of lone wolf idea. Yes, and it's it's almost returning to that idea that that person has just evil in them, right? Rather than look at a broader thing, they go, "This might be an issue of society." Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there there's even I mean, our our legal system in the United States is really only set up to deal with the bad actor, like the individual mm. who's who makes some kind of egregious, um, who has, you know, has is egregiously prejudiced and and says, you know, I'm not going to hire you because you're a woman. It's really the only, our legal system isn't really set up to deal with this other kind of bias. And interestingly, when when you look at people's experience in the workplace, the the more subtle kind of everyday ambiguous kinds kind of bias that comes from culture and not necessarily from a bad actor is can be more detrimental because it, it requires a lot more cognitive resources to try to figure out what's going on that, than it does if you're dealing with someone who's just obviously racist or obviously sexist. You know, that, that's pretty easy to, to identify and to, to kind of compartmentalize. But this other kind of insidious, pervasive, you know, everyday um, uh, discrimination is, it's much trickier. It's sort of like a slippery and ambiguous phenomenon. Well, that was, I mean, your, your chapter, which starts with uh, Philando Castile's 
um, story. The really, mm-hmm. as far as I can see, it, it, it in in every report that I, I I've read over time that that is you know it it seems to me to be an act of of of, of murder and mm-hmm. and is one of the most for me anyway unsettling stories I, th- I think of the book and it, and it was so interesting where you know you have there uh, uh, a, a policeman who basically is in a perpetual state of panic when he's mm-hmm. he's he's pulled over this this, this young man who has dreadlocks mm-hmm. and then shoots him seven times mm-hmm. and then you looked at some incredible research of policemen when they were being asked basically uh, about kind of race issues and and this idea of just you know well I don't know how to speak to someone who's black I don't know what to do that even when they were being asked just in in those situations there was seemed to be immediately a sense of panic yeah I mean I think that that level of um of fear is is endemic and you know the Philando Castile Geronimo Yanez story is it, you know, I think it represented an absolute crisis. It was a, a tragedy and a murder and a crisis. And um, you sort of had this this um, perfect storm of uh, an officer who was impaired, um, who, you know, had been showing kind of cracks and fissures in his own well-being for a, a, quite a long time um, and had been seen to overreact and panic and um, have violent outbursts, you know, when unnecessary violent outbursts and had never been kind of curtailed by his department. You had, um, you had racist fear um, and racism, which is pervasive in American society and, you know, police are not exempt from it by any means. Um, You had, uh, you had the presence of a gun, um, you had the presence of two guns. You had the presence of Philando Castile's gun and you had the presence of Geronimo Yanez's gun. And um, you had uh, feelings of threat which converted to panic and completely obliterated the police officer's um, you know, sense of reality. Of course, later in that case, um, when he was asked what, you know, just briefly in case the, your listeners aren't familiar with it, you know, there was this moment where Yanez approached um, Castile's car and Castile uh, said, you know, I'd have to let you know that I, I have, you know, I'm in possession of a gun, which he was legally allowed to have in Minnesota. We have a, um, we're, we're, you know, you can be licensed and carry a gun. And so he, he was, you know, it was completely legal thing. Um, and Yanez claims that he saw Castile's hand on the gun, but he, but, but Yanez was also giving him like completely garbled instructions because he was in such a state of panic and, um, later, you know, claimed that he saw Yanez's hand on the gun, but we know from forensic evidence that he, that that wasn't true. So there, you know, so there was also, probably something like testifying, which is a term that's used in policing here you know, testifying, but lying at the same time. So it was really, um, it was really just like a perfect storm and a complete, you know, complete disaster. And there are, there are, you know, things that can be done to prevent something like this from happening. But I, f- I mean, I, I think fundamentally, you know, the, the racism that is pervasive in our society is, at the root of a lot of this. So um, again, you know, that one of my hopes is that 
the you know the the work here can start to kind of move move things in a more positive direction how much do you think uh, 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 donald trump becoming president has created a focus on 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 this in 2016 because i was thinking of i, I read eddie glaude jr's book begin again Mm-hmm. which is a very beautifully written book about how he kind of just immersed himself in James Baldwin when he was mm. going through this incredible anxiety of what he saw as as, as a hugely regressive step in, in, mm-hmm. in American politics. Um, and I think we've seen some of this in the UK as well, where certainly we're, we're as in the US, seeing um, culture wars, kind of some of the, the flames being found to cover up, up for, um, you know, the, an incompetent government, uh, which is, mm-hmm. is, is is very common. I, and I think after Brexit as well, it seemed that there were some people who felt that they now had a rubber stamp of approval um, for things which had not really been said as much in public. Yes. Um, do you feel that's played a part now and, and that you are part of the reaction against that, part of the going, right, this, this this has now allowed us to really focus on things that are deeply rooted in society and are sometimes covered up but are mm-hmm. still there? Yeah, you know, I think one of the, one of the really big, um, uh, oh gosh, there's so much to say about 2016, but I think that one of the, one of the most alarming um dimensions of it was really a change in norms and the media was completely complicit in in my mind in in shifting norms because every time the media showed Donald Trump at a large rally you know kind of like stirring up you know hundreds or thousands of people that added to the sense that this particular way of seeing the world is popular and the, the, this kind of rhetoric is, is widespread and popular. And over you know, the four years of Trump's presidency, I think the, what we saw was the erosion of old norms and the, the, the replacing of them with these new social norms of discourse, of um, you know, epithets, of just unvarnished racism. One of the things that, um, you know, one of one of the sort of bodies of research that I found really moving is uh, the whole body of research around how norms shape behavior. You know, what I came to understand was that we you know, there's so many, there are many many things that cause us to behave in a particular way. It's not just our own beliefs. It's not just our own values, though those contribute. It's also what we think other people are doing, and. Even if you know the norms are so powerful that even if we're told that what everyone else is doing is bad, it still makes us more likely to do those things. Like there's a study about the petrified national forest in the U.S. where um, people were shown a placard that said, "Either you know, um, please don't steal petrified wood from the forest," or a lot of people are stealing petrified wood from the forest. You know, please don't do it. And the people who saw the sign that said a lot of people are doing this bad thing were, you know, there was more stealing as a result of that sign. So um, now I'm sort of getting off track, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that changing norms um, was, was a, was an incredibly dangerous move. So, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say whether, um, you know, whether Trump and kind of the Trump phenomenon ex- ex- 
exposed, purely just exposed what was already there and versus, you know, how much the, the Trump phenomenon kind of shifted norms in a particular direction and kind of brought a lot of people along in, in a direction that they weren't necessarily going to go otherwise. I don't really, I don't know, you know, what the balance is there. But um, certainly a, a part of it was an exposure of, of, you know, sort of latent fears and latent, um, you know, anxieties as well. Mm. I think you had a second part of your question too, which I am now not remembering. Oh, don't worry. I, I was, was interested when you were saying that. It reminded me because when you mentioned about doing physics, and I thought, you know, one of the important things about having as many people who uh, are in the public eye from as broad a uh, mix of ethnic backgrounds, and to you know that there's there's lots of of women standing on the stage as well who are physicists. You know, all of those things are really important because they give people permission, don't they? Mm -hmm. For a lot of people, you know, it's all very well saying everyone's got an equal, uh, you know, equal chance. You can say that if you imagine that to be true. But if you actually just see a stage that is just filled with men who are physicists, then there is something in you that goes, oh, well, that's not really the pursuit I'm allowed to go for as much. Mm -hmm. You know, however unconscious that might be. And I was thinking on the other way around there, that if you have someone who is in the front of a political race and the kind of diatribes that they're using are ones that are very much capitalizing on ideas of racism and the fear within that then that gives that's the negative permission that also gets given doesn't it absolutely yeah absolutely um yeah i mean speaking of of um can i sort of take a role model uh digression of course of course I, <laughs> i'm just i'm i'm just it's just reminding me of you know one of the one of the studies about the, the positive impact of role models um, that I found is that uh, is that when you yeah when you when you create um, a sort of flesh and blood when, when you show people flesh and blood examples of people like them who are doing something like physics or or, or some kind of field it kind of works as like a social inoculation so it 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 allows people to withstand sort of cultural stereotypes um, and and allow them to feel that they that they belong in a field like I'm thinking of one study that found that um, young women engineering majors when they were paired with they were either paired with male mentors or female mentors or no mentors and um, what the study found was that all of the women no matter if they were paired with male or female or sorry, if they were paired with male uh, mentors or female mentors, they all um, sort of felt like the, their, their engineering major was difficult and the classes were, you know, becoming increasingly difficult and they weren't, you know, quite sure about whether they were going to um, uh, succeed or not. But those with female mentors ended up staying in the field and at, at, at a very high rate, I think at the rate of 100%, and those with male mentors um, many of them left the field. So it really, it sort of creates like a, an ability to stick with something that is, um, that is extremely important as well. 
I just find it amazing how recent so many... I, I was doing an event the other day and there was a 90-year-old woman in the front row and she came up to me afterwards and she went, I wasn't allowed to study science. Um, mm. I was made to study three languages, two of them dead languages, and they told me I had to go into the diplomatic corps. And she'd obviously spent her whole life just thinking, I wish I'd been a scientist. And then people like Jocelyn Bell Burnell who discovered pulsars. Right. And the only reason she was able to study science was that um, her parents stormed into the school and said, why is our child not allowed to study science? She loves it. And they had to kind of demand and scream at people and it is that thing where you just go this is all so recent and to believe that as as i think in some parts of the media try and sell that story that oh well this has been sorted out now it's all right. been done it's all fine right and, it, and as your book shows there's still a, a great deal to be done amongst all of us what gives you the most optimism or or i could use the hans rosling word possibilism um mm. in terms of uh being able to tackle our, uh, our biases? That's a good question. You know, I think, ooh, some, what gives me the most possibilism, the sense that, the, I think the thing that gives me the most sense of hope is that I have seen change. I have seen, I've seen change in myself. I've seen change in people around me I've seen I've seen change in others. I mean, I've over the course of researching this project, spent about five years um, doing the research and writing. I I watched people change. I really did, and so I think the fact that we are not necessarily stuck with the toxic lies that we have been fed, or you know, that we've inherited, and that we can actually observe them. Um, react in a different way and engage with the world in a in a more just and more life-affirming way gives me an incredible amount of hope. I also really feel a sense of possibilism when I talk to people who are in advantaged groups who recognize that just because they have gotten a lot of advantages uh, and, um, you know, might have benefited from aspects of their social identity in certain ways, that doesn't mean that they're bad. And in fact, that gives them an incredible role to play in trying to create a society that we all wanna live in. Um, so I think, you know, when pe I think often people who are in advantaged groups feel like we were talking about earlier in the conversation, you know, a sense of shame or defensiveness or paralysis, but when those same people can recognize and understand just how huge of a role and how much of a contribution they can make to this project, um, that gives me a huge sense of of hope and possibility as well. And just you know, just kind of seeing seeing change, like a lot of the case studies that I that I talk about in the book are um, studies where people changed, organizations changed, um, you know, communities changed, and were able to to relate to one another in more. Um, more life-giving ways and that that gives me a huge amount of hope wonderful thank you so much i was going to ask you as well by the way who who when you were growing up who were your greatest inspirations oh who were my biggest inspirations i oh, i loved you know i had a cousin who was dating this woman who i just thought was the absolute coolest she was an artist she lived in um you know, a loft in Soho in like the 80s. 
And she had a collection of animal skeletons that I thought was extremely cool. And she was someone who just sort of like completely um, was very comfortable in her own skin and taking up space in the world. She was someone I really looked up to. But I also really looked up to writers and artists like Adrian Rich and Laurie Anderson and Kate Bush and uh, Bjork and other like Joni Mitchell, women who forged these completely kind of sui generis paths for themselves. Um, that th those people were all extremely inspirational to me too. Oh, I loved it. Laurie, Laurie Anson, by the way, I just have to make Have you heard the podcast that she did with a guy called Adam Buxton, who's a very no. funny UK? It's great because they end up spending a lot of time just talking about folding bicycles. And it's one <laughs> of those conversations where Adam is, I think, quite comfortable in his own skin and a huge admirer of Laurie Anson. And then she was slightly late for the thing and they only had a shorter amount of time than they were meant to have. You know, it was one of those PR days. But they had such a wonderful conversation. And then they were talking about watching, there's a, a British TV series called Doc Martin. Who is a, a grumpy doctor who works on the coast of Cornwall? And she said how much she loved that. And somehow you never imagined Laurie Anderson watching mainstream British television about grumpy <laughs> doctors. And then even more so, you don't imagine her sat there, perhaps, you know, when Lou Reed was still around, sat watching, you know, there's Lou Reed watching the grumpy Cornish doctor as well. And Laurie Anderson's there going, that's a bit like you, Lou. You're a bit grumpy as well. I just love, you know, when you, again, the way we put people in boxes, when you sometimes see great experimentalists, you don't realise that they might at the same time also sometimes like watching cartoons. Or they might, it's you know, true. that. that and some of their favorite bands might be bands that are silly bands. I know you sort of, I, I sort of don't even imagine Laurie Anderson like walks on the ground. I feel like she just sort of glides a few inches above the ground. So the idea that she, yeah, that she's sort of like camped out on her couch, you know, with a blanket and slippers and, and watching bad TV. It's very hard to picture, but it's a, it's a lovely image. I, I feel like I'd like to kind of capture that and just frame it on my wall. It would be great. She's so great. That's, uh, um, Jessica, thank you very much for, for joining us. The end of bias is out now. And uh, you are you're just about to, you're about to fly over to, to the UK, which might now be in the past by the time this goes out. But can I just find out what are you what is uh, going to go in your bag for you to read on the flight over? Oh, I'm reading um, Emma DeBerry's book. I think it's called What What White People Can Do Next. Um, I'm going to be in conversation with her at the Hay, um, Hay Winter Weekend. So I'm, I'm really excited to read her book. Um, and I'm also going to br bring some books of poetry. I'm bringing uh, a book called Imperial Liquor by one of my favorite poets, Ahmad Jamal Johnson, which is about um, his growing up in Compton in the 80s. And probably bring a couple of other poetry books as well excellent um um have a wonderful trip the end of bias as i said is uh jessica nordell it is uh out now and uh it is filled that there's it's a, a really such a strong collection there's so many stories that you you will also find in there which are, are so brilliantly illustrative as well and that really make you think about yourself as well and and the unconscious biases that we we all have to accept that, that we we battle and sometimes probably conscious ones as well so thank you very much for listening thank you very much to our producer trent burton and uh we hopefully hopefully you'll listen to us again next week bye bye <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Support us at patreon.com slash bookshambles. Rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts. Hope to see you at Nine Lessons and Compendium. Have a great week. Back next week with a new episode. Until then, take care, stay safe. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.
Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.